Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 58. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and I am not a mugwump, even though being a person who remains aloof and independent from party politics sounds ideal right about now, as being aware of them means you have to read stupid as fuck stories about chicken-hearted, dunderheaded nincompoop Boris Johnson using terms like mugwump when there's real news happening. And this week, I'd like to start in a slightly different way to normal by reading a rather sad report that I've been sent here at Partly Political Broadcast Headquarters, a.k.a. the small room in my tiny flat that I make this in. And this has been sent to me by one of the UK's top robotic scientists, David Robot Science. You must have heard of him. He's very famous and most definitely a robotic scientist, David Robot Science. Anyway, this report that he sent to me is very sad, and I would just like to warn you that it contains some disappointing accounts and infuriating stupidity, as well as a real kick in the face for the possibility of real artificial intelligence anytime soon. So if you are someone who, like me, feels like the Matrix or Robopocalypse would actually be a better situation for humanity than our current government, then maybe turn off your ear sets, head plugs or brain phones now. So, this report reads, and I warn you, it's very sad. Here we go. We, the top, top robotic scientists massive, were saddened that despite all our efforts and hard work, the Prime Minister Theresa Maybot 3000 yet again did not pass the Turing test during the experimental runs on the Ma or Peston shows this past weekend. We are very sorry to announce that despite seeming almost human in appearance, the Maybot's interactions still largely just revolve around repeating the same responses again and again, unable to respond with questions with either corresponding statements or any valid answers. Having never programmed in the phrase strong and stable government, we here at the Robotic Scientists Massive can't figure out why it appears constantly in all of the Maybot speech. It is very possible that the microcontroller is damaged in an irreparable way. This would also explain why, when campaigning in Wales recently, the Maybot referred to wanting to lead the world in preventing tourism. We also want to strike deals uh, across the world for trading, for exporting British goods and services. We want to lead the world. In preventing tourism. While this could be a simple muddle or text error, it could also be that programming has finally led the Maybot to conclude that post-Brexit Britain will be such a decrepit, isolated shithole that no one will visit ever, ever again. 
But these were not the only noticeable errors spotted by myself or other wonderful robotic scientist robot scientists. When asked by unsuspecting human Andrew Marr on BBC One, why are nurses having to use food banks, the Maybot responded with, there are many complex reasons why people go to food banks. A very confusing reply, since most of us here can only think of one reason people go to food banks, which is because they can't afford to buy food. We can only assume that perhaps a glitch caused the Maybot to calculate a variety of other improbable possibilities and complex reasons that over the course of the projected 1,000-year conservative rule that may happen, people might go to food banks. Including such possibilities like they crash-landed their spaceship there, or they are parliamentary foot soldiers sent to clear out the port and scavenge the food for the stocks now present in Parliament Square. Or even because their bodies are now the Soylent Green food supplies stocked in the food bank. On the plus side, when asked the same question posed to Liberal Democrats leader and haunted Boy Scout Tim Farron as to whether she considered gay sex a sin, the Theresa Maybot 3000 replied, no. This showed us that we have finally successfully programmed her to be comfortable with all methods of fucking the British people. We were also quite upset by the report on the Maybot's test conversation with the President of the EU Commission, as printed in German newspaper FAZ, or Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung for all you acronym haters out there, or ATCHOTS, as we like to call you in the robot lab here. Haha, <laughs> we're very funny as robot scientists. Despite uploading all necessary documents explaining how the European Union, laws and common sense all work, the Maybot appears to have not been updated past beginner stage of the Brexit code. Unable to recognise the money owed to the EU by the UK, or the time frame restraints given to it all, we can only conclude that she has been infected with some sort of rogue virus that has sadly narrowed her mainframe so the user interface only works for those that shout loudest regardless of the lack of coherent or plausible content. We conclude that the decision was correct to not allow the Maybot to do television debates or meet members of the public unless she is helicoptered in and they have been specifically invited and told not to ask questions. Unless bugs can be fixed, data can be rebooted and patches stabilised, we suspect the Maybot 3000 would be more used to people if she were scrapped and made into 46 individual loo roll holders. Yours, robotically, David Robot Science. Ah, oh, well, sorry to start on such a sad note. How sad was that? That report was from David Robot Science at the Institute of Real Serious Robot Science with robots and everything. So, uh... There you go. So, uh, hello to you and your face and your knees, and I hope you're enjoying yet another four-day week due to May Day, a bank holiday that began as a spring festival, but now, in 2017, feels more like an appropriately named International Day for Distress Calls. Thank you for continuing to listen to this show, and it is nice to see from all the stats and info digits that a few more of you are joining this weekly audio summarising of all the ways that things are going wrong. Um, and in fact, because this show is on Acast and they have fancy, fancy stats, I noticed that we now have a more global audience than I thought. And this show's had over, in the last couple of weeks, over 70 listens in Kathmandu, which is pretty amazing. I mean, I'm assuming I'm assuming that's like, you know, several different people. It's not just one person listening to it over and over again uh, in a creepy way. But uh, I understand. Uh, that while Nepal still has high levels of poverty, um, it's aiming to be a developing country by 2022, which is exciting because that is around the time that the UK won't be a developing country anymore. So good luck, Nepal. And if you are one of the listeners from one of the more exotic locations, uh, 26 listeners in Middlesbrough, I'm looking at you, then please do get in touch and let me know if there's any politics closer to home that you'd like me to focus on uh, for this show or any particular aspects of UK politics that are more interesting from a global perspective. You know, things like any clues on just how much you can tax the crap out of us using WTO trade options uh, in the near future. You, you could probably earn a ton. Uh, 
Uh, similarly, thanks to everyone who sent me thoughts on what they'd like for the election-based shows uh, over the next few weeks. And I'm keen to hear from more of you on what you'd like me to put on this show just to make uh, the run-up to June the 8th less shit awful. Um, if you want to drop me a line at Bro on Twitter, the Bro group on Facebook or partly political broadcast at gmail.com, do let me know. Um, quick thanks also to Sophie who donated to the Kofi.com account this week and you can do that too at ko-fi.com forward slash Bro. or if you fancy giving a more regular donation head to patreon.com forward slash Bro. and if you don't fancy doing any of those despite how goddamn fanciable they are I mean mm-mm, I would then why not give the show a five star review on iTunes in Nepalese if you like and then I'll use Google Translate to misunderstand your intentions entirely and see it as a threat also, I always forget to plug this, but if you're one of like the alpha team, you know, the Parpol pros who listen to this show on the day it comes out, uh, then my personal comedy ma- mailing list email is going to go out at some point on Tuesday or Wednesday. So if you'd like more words from me in your inbox, all up over your email and shiz, uh, and details on where I'm geeking and stuff, then do sign up at my website on www.tnndweb.co.uk forward slash contact. And there's going to be some good stuff on my mail app this month as well, um, like the show that I'm exclusively announcing here, Well, I've tweeted it a couple of times, but I'm exclusively announcing it here. Um, I'm running a show on election night, June the 8th, at the Phoenix in Oxford Circus um, in London called Partly Political Broadcast Presents Fuck the Election. Um, and it's going to be me, and it's going to have acts including, this lineup's really good already, Marcus Brigstock, Josie Long, Johnny and the Baptists, Bishop K. Ali, Joe Wells, and several others as well. There's more to come. There's more, a couple more people that I'm waiting to get confirmations from. Um, and I've not announced the lineup anywhere yet as I'd like you pod heroes to get first dibs on the tickets, uh, which you can grab. They are £10, and you can either go to wegottickets.com forward slash event forward slash three triple nine six two, which is really complicated. Uh, or you can just go to phoenixcavendishsquare.co.uk site soon, which will be there, or sign up to my mailing list uh, or the Twitter, as I'm tweeting about it loads, and either way, I'm putting the links up on both those things. Um, it's only going to go on from 8pm to 10.30pm, so you can laugh for a few hours before we cry for 20 years. Um, and then we can just carry on drinking afterwards until we stop feeling sad or we can go home and maybe sleep until 2022 and hopefully miss it all. Totally your call. Um, so, yeah, do grab the tickets for that. You know how the internet works. And also, as I mentioned last week, uh, the kids show about the election I'm doing with Simple Politics creator Tatton Spiller is on June the 4th at the Underbelly South Bank. And you can grab tickets for that at underbellyfestival.com. I'm really sorry that these are all London-based, but I'll be priced out of living in this city pretty soon. So I'm just getting as many shows in here before that happens. Um, last admin thingy is if you're feeling really disillusioned about this election thing, as many are, and I am too, then have a look at moreunited.uk. Um, I'm hoping to get someone from that campaign on the show at some point but what they're doing is a crowdfunding movement who aim to support candidates from any party who uphold the progressive values they believe in so probably not any conservatives um so they are much less about party politics and more about who might actually be good for you where you are and i think that's a really interesting and seemingly sort of properly progressive idea so do check them out and i think they're choosing who to support with all the donation money they've got at the moment um and they're going to choose in the next few days so sign up a ASAP if you want to be part of that. That's moreunited.uk. Right, so on this week's show, there are two interviews. 
two. I know, I'm spoiling you. Or you're thinking, God, it will go on forever. No, I'm spoiling you, trust me, and they're not very long. Um, first, I am speaking to Yanis Kutsumitis, who is a global politics analyst and contributor to France 24, and he talks to me about the second round of the French elections happening this coming weekend. And then I'm speaking to Gracie Bradley at Against Borders for Children on why, if you're a parent, you need to be boycotting the school census. And you really do. Why? Wait and find out. It's so exciting. Uh, it's not exciting. It's terrifying. But wait and find out. Um, also, there is, of course, general election shears, local election shizzles, and a first look at the 100 days of a giant melted satsuma in the White House. But first, this week, let us start with some of this. Brexit fallout! If Theresa May was on deal or no deal, it seems she'd tell tiny entertainment manticore Noel Edmonds that either she opens all boxes or nothing at all, and nothing would be better than just opening one or two boxes, despite the fact that she'd definitely then leave with nothing at all, rather than at least one P. Then she'd probably call up the Junker and tell him how to do his job before storming off the set. Well, that's how it would be, uh, based on the report in German paper FAZ that came out today. Uh, and that report was of the uh, time last Wednesday when President of the EU Commission and slightly melted old John Oliver, Jean-Claude Juncker, had an informal dinner with Theresa May. To summarise, a collection of tweets uh, by Jeremy Cliff, a journalist at The Economist, who translated the German article... May seems to think that she can do Brexit negotiations her way, assumes the issue of EU or UK expats living in the UK or EU respectively can all be sorted out in a couple of months' time without much hassle, doesn't think the UK needs to pay the EU any money at all, doesn't seem to understand that by avoiding paying back the money that she doesn't think we owe, Britain will be made a third country in relation to the EU, like, say, you know, Hong Kong or Australia, and given no trade deal at all. Apparently, Juncker left 10 Downing Street saying he was 10 times more sceptical than he was before, which, considering he was pretty sceptical about the Brexit deal already, makes me wonder if dealing with Theresa May and David Davis in the same day has left him even questioning what the point of existence is in the first place. I mean, to be fair, the idea of having dinner with either of them would be fucking awful, wouldn't it? Can you imagine that evening? Ooh, what are we having for dinner? I can't tell you, but dinner means dinner. Oh, it'd be shit. Now, this report was leaked with the intention of making May look bad, obviously. It's why it was leaked to a German newspaper. But even with that in consideration, it still makes her look really fucking awful. Uh, And as though she doesn't have a clue what we're doing and we're all in trouble. Downing Street responded by saying that that report was Brussels gossip and the Prime Minister didn't recognise that account of the meeting last Wednesday. Though to be fair, May doesn't seem to recognise how any of this works and I wonder if she has some sort of sensibility blindness. Part of the report says that when May said to Juncker, let's make Brexit a success, he replied, Brexit cannot be a success. And that comment, sounding like something Simon Cowell might tell an Argos employee after they've wailed through two verses of firework in the wrong key, is another in a series that shows that while May is making a pig's ear of everything, the EU are clearly playing hardball as well, as they know the UK doesn't have a lot of ground here and they don't want to make leaving the EU look easy. Otherwise, everyone would just have a go popping in and out of it, you know, like, well, Tony Blair and his self-interest just pop in and out of politics. And we all know how unconstructive and relentlessly annoying that is. One of the big issues is that of the rights of EU citizens in the UK, which European Council President Donald Tusk says he wants to be at the centre of all the talks. And with May assuming that that could just be sorted out willy-nilly by the end of June, ignoring all the complications of healthcare and visas and the fact she's got to do a fucking general election in the meantime, it isn't really helping. 
Similarly, all 27 EU member states are pretty keen on the UK paying back the 60 billion euro bill before we leave, which is a mix of money owed for legally binding commitments we've already made for up to 2020, pension promises to EU officials and UK citizens in the EU, and costs of moving EU regulators from the UK back to Europe. So May saying that the UK doesn't want to pay any of that is like her eating an entire meal, then refusing to pay the bill or any costs of lost customers who saw she was in there and decided to go elsewhere because she'd have sat down the whole time shouting, dinner means dinner and put everyone off their food. And really, all this shows is that the EU, like Snap, have got the power in these negotiations. That's not how the Snap song goes, but there was a there was a really boring political remix. So May can't just swan in demanding that they now work for her. She warned that the 27 EU member states were lining up to oppose Britain. Of course they are, idiot. It's like someone running into a 40-foot brick wall by choice, cracking their head on it and then demanding the wall apologise and dismantle itself to make things even. Labour's Shadow Secretary for exiting the EU and sad Max Hedrum, Keir Starmer, responded to the FAZ report saying it was a deeply worrying account that May was putting party interest before national interest and that Labour will bring a new approach to the whole Brexit ordeal. Which all sounds pretty dandy, except judging by Starmer's announcement of Labour's Brexit policies last week, their new approach seems to be going in circles before forgetting where they're meant to be heading and walking back to the beginning. I mean, there are some good bits in the Labour proposals, uh, including guaranteeing EU citizens' rights in the UK, then there's also scrapping the not-so-great repeal bill and changing it for an EU rights and protections bill, which would make sure all workers' rights and environmental law and bits that we really want are fully protected. And that sounds great. But then it also mentions leaving the single market and customs union while retaining the rights of the single market and customs union. Well, why just not not leave them then, if you want to keep all the rights? That's like leaving a flat share, but then paying them extra to visit daily and use the Wi-Fi and have a sleep and eat and use the bathroom. Pointless. Starmer said Labour would end free movement, but not sever ties with Europe, and it sort of feels like he's somehow trying to play both leave and remain voters at the same time. I get the feeling that at the end of a relationship, Starmer would say, let's at least stay friends and still invite you to a few parties that you didn't feel comfortable at and surrounded by boring people before you both realised it was completely pointless and gave up. But you compare that to Theresa May, who'd just keep turning up to your home, demanding she can take whatever she likes from it and saying it's definitely all your fault, and Labour's policies do in fact seem a little bit preferable. Oh, and this week, can you guess? Can you guess who this week is it that's leaving the UK because of Brexit? Because of Brexit! Seven international banks, that's right, including Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, Crete Suisse and Deutsche Bank, who are opening offices in Frankfurt. I mean, you'd assume Deutsche Bank had one in Frankfurt already, or they're really missing a trick, aren't they? And yeah, sure, there is something about bankers having to fuck off that feels great. It's like, yeah, all of you fuck, I'll drive you to the airport, mate. Except that profiting from global crashes requires quite a lot of people, and Deutsche Bank moving would actually take 4,000 jobs from the UK. I mean, typical banks, eh? Very hard to save anything, and loads of penalties if you withdraw early. Still, I'm sure the UK will be fine without all the financial institutions that we use as our main globally sought-after service. It'll just mean that the rest of the world starts coming to us for our other great services, like, um... Ah, delayed trains and chips in the rain and... Oh, God, I think I actually want the banks to stay. How did that happen? Bloody Brexit. It's time for Diffusion on Parti Politique. We, nous sommes uh, mere days away from France electing a new president. 
And we, I am years away from being fluent in French, despite me using two phone apps every day which insist on teaching me phrases I'll never use. Un requiem manger dauphine. Great, thanks for that. Now on my next trip to Paris, I'll just hang around until I see a great white devourer bottlenose by the Eiffel Tower. I'm sure that'll happen every day. Very useful. Anyway, it's down to Emmanuel Macron or Marine Le Pen, two very different characters with a number of similarities. One is a centrist, one is very much a racist, and yet neither are from the main political parties, signalling that France too is full of ennui politique, even more than you are of my attempts to throw in bits of French I don't really understand into this intro. It's a big election for France, and whatever the results, it will mean the shape of French politics will be set on a new course. Possibly one of seven, followed by a nap. And whatever happens, it is going to affect us too. Not just because France is so nearby. I mean, you know, if you live in Plymouth, you're only a few miles away from touching Brest. Eh? 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 But because the French president is going to have a big old say in how Brexit pans out, being one of the founding member states of the EU. So, I've given a few rundowns on the Election Francais over the past few weeks, but I thought it'd be useful to get some proper info about whether the French believe their own phrase of Queen ne avance pas, recule, or if they'd much prefer to sadly regarde on songe manger en orange. No, uh, sorry, that's not what I meant, bloody apps. I meant revenir au temps du fascisme. See, that's why I asked Yanis Kutsumitis, a global political analyst and sometimes contributor to France 24, to explain not just what might happen next week in France, but why and how. So have a listen to that, and I'll be here working out just where in France I can go to talk about having some butter with an apple before pointing out that a horse is an animal. Here's Yanis. So uh, we've got Macron and Le Pen in the final round of the French presidential election uh, with the obviously second round of voting happening on May the 7th. How likely is it going to be, Yanis, that this is a win for Macron? Well, it's uh, quite likely that uh, Macron will win, uh, basically because most of the uh, mainstream parties uh, are backing him, but also some uh, radical left parties like the Communist Party is backing him. Uh, so he's got uh, much support from the uh, almost the whole spectrum of the political spectrum in, in France. Uh, also, the media are uh, doing uh, also uh, some more coverage on, on him. Uh, the question mark is, will there be an, uh, a voter turnout uh, that will shift uh, the, the election towards Le Pen? Uh, this is the real question mark, because I, I can't see any significant swing votes uh, coming towards uh, Le Pen. Uh, the only chance that Le Pen has is uh, to have a uh, low turnout uh, in 10 days. So is that is that because, uh, you know, Macron's a centrist, so he's got uh, he's got support from both sides of the spectrum, whereas Le Pen is kind of just one direction. You know, she's got yeah. she's got her party. Well, well, is that what's happened? Yeah. Well, I think it's it, two main reasons. One reason is uh, she's challenging uh, France's uh, uh, membership in uh, the European Union and the Eurozone. And this is uh, something that uh, most of the establishment uh, thinks uh, it will create uh, disastrous uh, circumstances for France. And the second thing is uh, her uh, far-right, hard-right uh, uh, positions uh, towards uh, migration and uh, religion and uh, civil liberties. These are the two main reasons why she's uh, concentrating so much uh, resistance from uh, uh, other parties. 
Right. Okay. There's quite a there's quite a lot there that I'd like to ask you about. So let's take a step back for a second. Um, just looking at Macron, he was previously part of the Socialist Party, wasn't he? I think he worked for Hollande for a while as his financial advisor. Well, not exactly. He wasn't a member of the party. He was an ex investment banker who was hired by Hollande to join the government. So right. he wasn't really. He isn't really a party apparatchik in a socialist sense. Uh, he was raised, uh, he, he graduated from the finest schools of France. He had a short uh, career at the, in Rothschild Investment Bank, and he was considered a wunderkind for uh, the French uh, uh, public uh, officials, and uh, he was uh, appointed as economy minister in the Hollande government. Right. Okay. So he is quite separate too, because obviously uh, the uh, Amon had a very low voting, and the Socialist Party seemed to be quite unpopular at the moment. So I was wondering, there's definitely a separation between Macron and and the and Hollande's uh, presidency. Well, uh, the, yes, and I, I I see some real similarities with uh, the divisions uh, that uh, are tormenting also the Labour Party in, in the UK between the Corbynists and the Blairists. And uh, there is a real challenge, uh, I think, for the centre-left in Europe uh, in general on uh, how to approach the globalisation and the financial crisis issues. Uh, would it be, should it have to be with a more Marxist, a more leftist, hard leftist, radical leftist approach or a more mainstream centrist approach? This is a fundamental issue for the uh, socialist Labour parties in Europe right now, and and is is Macron's approach uh, a more mainstream, more central approach? Is that what's making him yes, yes, more exactly. favourable at the moment? Uh, an analysis of the votes he got uh, indicates that he got almost uh, more than uh, more than a third from the centre right, and uh, the left uh, centre left was another third, and the other third was from centrist uh, uh, voters. So he's been able to collect the votes from uh, a wide variety of uh, political spectrum. And is there not a danger? Because I remember reading a little while ago that I think he managed to offend uh, the sort of French right by, uh, was it uh, talking about Algeria? I think that France is influenced yeah. in Algeria. And then he also yeah. managed to offend the left talking about uh, people that were opposed, supporting people that are opposed to equal marriage. You know, is there a danger with him being centrist that he will actually upset both left and right wing? Well, this is one of the, the true difficult uh, steps he has to make. He has to balance uh, on a very... A narrow line between the left and the right, and uh, right now in in France it's a very difficult uh, uh, situation because of the high unemployment and the danger, the, the risks that uh, most of the working class people feel uh, that they're uh, they're supposed to have because of the globalization, and uh, right now to go and promote. Uh, let's say, more market-oriented ideas, uh, it's a bit tricky for the leftist-oriented uh, audience. Uh, so he has to make more soft tones regarding his uh, liberal uh, market-oriented ideas. On the other hand, he has to promote more stability, more uh, safety, and more uh, more conservative uh, appeal to the, to the right. So it will be quite a task, but uh, I think... The real 
the real uh, advantage for Macron is that Le Pen is not really liked among the upper class or the, the upper middle class of France. Uh, she's seen uh, very likable to the some many people in the working class and also rural areas. But uh, the, the numbers she got in Paris were devastating. She got more less than 5% of votes. Uh, oh, wow. So that's a huge division between uh, urban France and rural France right now. Yeah, yeah, that's a massive... I didn't realise it was quite so low. Yeah, yeah, it was it, very low. Yeah. And in other big cities as well, in Lyon, it was low as well. And uh, she, she, there's also a big appeal of her in uh, northwestern France, uh, which is, uh, has severe problems from uh, deindustrialization, and also in the south, where the big problems with migration. But uh, she doesn't get any good numbers in the west, in Bretagne or Bordeaux, and uh, in the western regions of France, when she has very low numbers there. And, and is and is uh, I mean is immigration really a serious issue in France at the moment? Is that where Le Pen has got the support that she's got from, um, or is it a lot like have we had you know yeah. we've had it in in the UK and in America where it's been yeah. kind of a misdirected blame uh, quite a lot of the time? Well, uh, w- when there is a high unemployment, it's easy to target uh, migrants uh, for the problems you face. But uh, there is there is uh, a real problem of uh, migration. We saw that in Calais, with the jungle there, and uh, we see uh, huge numbers of migrants arriving every day from Africa uh, to Italy, and then they can easily travel uh, to France. Uh, so there was there's also a problem with how to integrate uh, Muslim uh, minority migrants into the society. And uh, this is something that uh, apparently the, the French state hasn't done very well because there are a lot of uh, disenfranchised uh, Muslim youth uh, that go into crime and also to terrorism as well. So there, there is an agenda that uh, Le Pen has managed to speak to the, to the anxieties of uh, some French people. Uh, so there are some real issues for France to solve in the next uh, months and years in order to 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 tackle these uh, problems in the society sure and and i'm guessing the the all the sort of various terrorist attacks that have happened uh, in france and in, uh, sorry in paris and in nice uh, over the last couple of years have probably helped boost le pen's uh, support well, it remains to be seen if uh, this is the case, uh, because France is, is shown to be a very tolerant uh, society, hasn't, hasn't targeted uh, the Muslims in general as being uh, the, the perpetrators of terrorism. Uh, this is something that's totally different than the way that uh, Donald Trump has uh, targeted Muslims in general for terrorism. In France, it's not the case. Uh, but uh, Miss Le Pen has done that, yes. But uh, I don't think the society um, did buy that uh, argument from Le Pen in general. That's that's really nice to hear. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> such, a, such a relief, isn't it? <laughs> yes, <laughs> How yes. nice to hear of tolerant, reasonable people uh, in the world. Um, so, so that aside, then you, you mentioned obviously unemployment rates are, v- are very high, and obviously there's the the deindustrialization of, of certain areas of France. Are those the main political issues? Is that what what French people are mainly concerned about? Jobs market yes. at the moment. Uh, the the main concern is that in the next few years, France has to do significant budget cuts in order to to reach the European Union standards. Uh, she's uh, right now 
more than uh, two percentage points of GDP higher annual deficit than uh, the the criteria of the European Union, even uh, two percentage points higher than the UK. It's 5% of GDP, which is not uh, viable in the long term. So there, there is a big issue right now with big unemployment and people uh, living on welfare, uh, where to do the cuts. And uh, this is a real problem. And now people are afraid of losing their jobs, uh, also in the public sector, also in the private sector, because there is a, a sense of uh, insecurity, uncertainty about uh, what the economy is going to look like in the next uh, few months. There are some positive signs, but France is not really picking up as other countries are doing, like uh, Spain, for instance, or uh, Holland, or, and, and not to mention Germany, which is uh, the driver of the European economy. Sure. And so, so why isn't France picking up? What's been the, what's well, been the issues? Uh, the, I think uh, one issue is uh, very, uh, a very strict, uh, strictly regulated market. Uh, it's uh, not uh, being uh, preferred very easily by international investors for new projects, uh, for new factories to open up there. Uh, very, very uh, strict unions. Uh, there has to be some sort of uh, uh, labor uh, peace uh, between uh, uh, the the entrepreneurs and the businessmen and the unions uh, because it's uh, having an effect on the labor market. And uh, the last but not least is very high tax uh, regime in France, which is not uh, very attractive uh, to investment. Uh, so uh, all these uh, things are the, the main issues that the next president will have to tackle to, to unleash uh, the potential of the French economy, because there is some very good potential. They are very well-educated people. Uh, the the public uh, sector, the state is working very well there. Uh, there is real potential in France, but uh, they, they need to uh, settle their problems uh, in the next few months. It's, I, I saw someone on um, it was on Twitter, which I should never uh, take information from, obviously, apart from your feed. Um, but uh, I saw somebody put out on Twitter that uh, French people in general aren't particularly right or left wing. They're just very French and very keen on protecting things for French citizens. As you mentioned, there, the, the unions are very strong. Um, and uh, I guess that that is... Yes. quite we'll, tough we'll, for uh, a globalized society you know for uh, for uh, factories yes, to and, come in and, and one one other aspect uh, i think it's it's my impression i, ca I can't uh, really uh, prove it but my impression is that france has uh, french people have an issue of being a former empire and not being now one of the big big nations of the world so it's sure. a sense of lost uh, national pride that makes some people uh, angry about the results of globalization and following down in the ranks of a global uh, power uh, rank. So uh, I think uh, the, some, some sort of uh, national pride uh, has to pay some, uh, uh, it's an issue there as well. Sure, that's so quite similar to the UK in in some senses. Yeah. I think. Well, yeah, little, sadly, little yeah. England, little France. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and is and is that you, you mentioned earlier that the the sort of because uh, Le Pen is is anti EU, and, and so are French citizens generally very pro EU still at the moment. Then is that still 
they're still quite pleased to be part of the European Union? Yes, there uh, a large majority of French people are uh, pro-EU because they see on not only um, a, a monetary or or a, a trade union, they see uh, EU as uh, as a, a bond that. Uh, uh, makes them uh, more safe uh, for the next decades uh, regarding peace in Europe, in continental Europe, uh, which is something that wasn't an issue in the British referendum. But in continental Europe, um, World War II memories are still uh, there. And uh, the, the, the founders of the European Union saw this uh, treaty, saw this uh, bond of nations as a way to avoid uh, Europe going into a war again. So uh, this is something that French uh, consider it uh, very much uh, and pressure it because they're the founding one of the founding nations, six founding nations of uh, the EU. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it, to me, that sounds like very reasonable concerns. <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, one of the things that I, I mean, one of the many things that I uh, still don't understand why it wasn't addressed during the Brexit referendum, but we won't yes, get into that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And if I may interrupt, it's one of the main, uh, one of the main arguments uh, going against the nationalist approach like Le Pen is uh, promoting, because once you go into this path of uh, nationalism and closing borders, etc., there will be some countermeasures from other countries as well. And who who can guarantee that uh, an, uh, Germany, when it's alone and surrounded by enemies, how it will uh, uh, react in the future? So uh, right now, the, the reactionaries in Germany are very, very low numbers, but uh, history teaches us that an engaged Germany with Europe is the most uh, safe uh, way to have uh, uh, peace in uh, in Europe. Sure, sure, and, and I'm sure the same goes as well for for many other countries. A collective unit, it's still a lot safer yeah. rather than individual countries with their own individual interests. Yeah, um, I'm sure. And uh, and I was going to say, sort of, also looking at this, uh, the election coming up has has Hollande really been such a, a terrible president for France? Is you know well, he, I, I, I think one of the main reason why, that uh, he promised too many things that he couldn't deliver, or he wouldn't deliver, or he he just wasn't capable of delivering. And uh, the next thing is that uh, he played uh, by the old uh, school uh, party politics which uh, apparently the French are sick and tired of, as we've seen in uh, the last election, when a non-partisan uh, uh, candidate uh, came first in, uh, in the elections. So, uh, and also he couldn't manage his public image uh, with all these uh, love affairs and all. Uh, and he was considered a second-ranked player in the international uh, uh, arena. So... Uh, he, 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 I think he was a failure for France in general as a president. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Right. And so, and do you think uh, if with this kind of move to something a bit different and going with Macron, someone who's not really affiliated with a party, obviously he's got on Marsh that he's sort of created himself, but, you know, yeah. do, you, do you think Macron would be able to deliver d- differently? Well, and I know well, that's quite a prediction this, this to make. Is but... a, this is a really difficult question, Mark. Uh, apparently he will have the establishment with him, which is very crucial to run a country, to run a government. On the other hand, we have to see how the party politics will play out, because in June there are the parliamentary elections, and uh, even a very strong president in France needs the parliament to pass uh, significant uh, legislation. So uh, he needs to forge some alliances uh, with some parties, and uh, we have to see how this will play out in June. And so it's all a big question mark right now. Uh, if this presidency will be a success in, uh, and polls uh, turn out to be true that uh, he will win. Sure. And and I, I presume, you know, if were Le Pen to have a chance, she'd have even less chance of forming a parliament than yeah. he would anyway. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And there will be strong resistance in the parliament for almost every every bill she'll try to pass through parliament. So it would be like a hung, uh, not a hung parliament, a hostile parliament to the president, and uh, she might, uh, she will probably end up uh, being a lame duck uh, president in, in many of the things that she would like to to press on, like for instance a referendum for a eurozone membership, which has to go sure. through parliament. Sure, and 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 for a, a populist such as her, it's actually being in parliament is probably more damaging than uh, than not being yeah. pres- not being president. Yeah. Um, and 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 I hate to, you know I, I always feel like uh, when talking about other countries' elections that it's rude to ask uh, the effect on Britain. It's us always barging in saying, "What about us though?" Um, it, we always have to be centre of attention. But would would Macron uh, would a Macron presidency mean that there'd be difficulties in in the UK's Brexit? Do you think? Because I know well, he's so uh, very pro Europe. This, and... this is a very interesting question because uh, I think there are some uh, advantages for uh, Britain for if Macron gets elected because uh, he he could be more flexible in uh, getting a, a good deal for every party in uh, in uh, the Brexit negotiations because he's not a nationalist so he doesn't need to have a French nationalist agenda to go after the bad British uh, who want to leave us etc so he, I think he will have a more uh, pragmatic approach uh, to the negotiations. On the other hand, I think he'll be more competitive in uh, trying to attract uh, uh, financial uh, corporations from the city uh, to Paris. So uh, I think there will be some competition with uh, with the UK on uh, trying to attract uh, uh, companies uh, from the city and uh, UK as well in general. Whereas a socialist or a nationalist president would be much more difficult to do that. 
Sure. So it's sort of a good, could be a good thing for us if he gets in. It could not be. It will, will sort of depends. Uh, like with everything, it depends on what happens. Yeah. Um, so the very last question, uh, and that's been f- fantastically clear. Thank you very much for sort of explaining. I think uh, a lot of the listeners of the podcast, uh, you know, are based in the UK. And I think we've had a lot of front, you know, press here kind of going, oh, Le Pen's doing well, and, you know, or or it's been uh, very much uh, the, the right wing press here is targeted it one way. Um, so it's fascinating to hear. Uh, the real issues behind mm-hmm. it um, so uh, what I was going to ask is apart from yourself obviously uh, who mm-hmm. everyone uh, that listens to the podcast should follow on Twitter um, apart from yourself is there anyone else that you recommend listeners follow or check out to find out more about uh, uh, the French election well, the actual facts behind it yes I, w- I would recommend uh, for uh, English uh, tweets and uh, articles on France it's uh, Pierre Briançon uh, who writes for Political Europe his uh, Twitter handle is Pierre Brie. Uh, Pierre Brie. Is that B-R-I? Find... Yep. Yes, yes. Fantastic. And uh, also for uh, the French polls, uh, I would recommend Mathieu Gaillard. It's, uh, his uh, Twitter handle is M-A-T-H-I-E-U-G-A-L-L-A-R-D. Uh, okay, he's, a, he's a pollster, uh, one of the, I think, the best pollster right now in France. And uh, I took some advice for him as well uh, in my recent uh, forecast, <laughs> which was uh, <laughs> quite uh, successful. <laughs> and uh, also the director of uh, Les Echos, uh, the French newspaper, but he's basically tweeting in French, uh, Henri Gibier, H-G-I-B-I-E-R. Brilliant. Okay, cool. Yeah, so your 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 French pronunciation's accent is so good that I'm very <laughs> pleased you're spelling them out for us. Uh, that's <laughs> again typical British. None of us have really bothered to learn French. <laughs> Big thanks to Yanis for chatting with me. You can find him on Twitter at Yannikouts. That's Y-A-N-N-I-K-O-U-T-S. And his blogs can be found at yannikouts.wordpress.com. And many of his articles can be found on France 24 too. Uh, the Twitterers he recommended following are Matteo Gallard, which is at M-A-T-H-I-E-U-G-A-L-L-A-R-D. Henri Gibier, which is uh, at H-G-I-B-I-E-R, and Pierre Briancon, which who is at Pierre B-R-I. And as they say in France, actually, I speak English, so please stop pointing and shouting at things, you ignorant Englishman. Sorry, I mean, as they say in France, qui veut vivre vert. The future will tell. And in a week's time, we'll see how right or wrong Yanis was when either Macron will be French president or Le Penis. Yeah, that that was a cheap penis gag. Le, Le Penis. Yeah, you're, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. General election 2017 is my least favourite general. I much prefer general hospital or general knowledge. General election 2017. So far, the general election has already been a lot like every time I attempt to do exercise. Tons of bluster, but with very, very little substance or progress. Over the past week, the main highlights have been Theresa May saying she'll prevent tourism instead of terrorism, which temporarily lost her all the votes of all the staff of Madame Tussauds before they then saw her lifeless interview on the Marshall and Peston and realised she's constantly a useful promotion for the waxwork industry. 
Then Foreign Secretary and Marshmallow in a Suit Boris Johnson referred to Jeremy Corbyn as a mugwump because Johnson can only use words from the era he gets all his political ideals from. And then Rachel Johnson, Bojo's sister, announced that she was joining the Lib Dems as a protest vote against Brexit, which, if it was against anyone other than Boris, I'd class it as an A-grade shitty younger sibling move. I've seen them before. But while it's got the Lib Dems giddy like a geek kid who just made eye contact with the prom queen, unaware it's because she was looking through them daydreaming about screwing over her brother, I'm concerned about a Johnson family feud affecting the election. I mean, look what happened last year when Bojo just had a fallout with his mates. Fucking Brexit. Exactly. With six weeks still to go, polls are showing Conservatives still very much in the lead, with people who are home during the day and actually answer the phone, while Lib Dems are also making gains and Labour and UKIP are making losses. According to a YouGov poll, people who are switching parties and voted Leave are mostly going from UKIP to Conservative, because, you know, it's pretty much by the by. It's sort of like Vampire Bites Werewolf, Werewolf Bites Vampire, isn't it? Constant circle of awful. And that's pretty risky for Labour, as it strengthens the right-wing vote, and in seats where Labour only has a marginal lead, if the Tories sweep up all the UKIP votes too, because they're bang on the xenophobia right now, then that seat will be theirs. The poll also suggested that Remain voters are mainly switching from Labour to Lib Dem because everyone loves an underdog, and in fact most polls suggest a lot of voters are switching parties or changing their minds this year, except for, you guessed it, Conservative voters who are sticking with their party because the whole point of being Conservative is that you don't like change, except they're causing lots of change with Brexit and why is nothing consistent in 2017. But Conservative voters always do stick with their party. They always do, and that is the key to why the Tories win, because when needed, they operate like the Borg, one assimilated mind, while all the centre-left and left parties spend their campaigns tearing each other apart, or in the case of Labour, just kicking their own party to death and then boasting about how they're at least giving one party a good kicking. Thing is, as I mentioned last week, the Conservatives' policies aren't very strong. They look set to be scrapping the triple lock pension, which ensures pensions rise by wages, inflations or 2.5%, and that's probably going to go. The Conservatives won't promise not to raise tax or VAT again, and this week they rejected the petition to scrap the horrific rape clause, making women on tax credits provide evidence that they've had a child through non-consensual methods. And if that wasn't awful enough, on the Mar show, May didn't seem to think that the government's wage cap on nurses has led to an increase in nurses having to use food banks to stay alive. You know, hey, maybe maybe she's right. I'm sure she's right. Actually thinking about it, I'm sure that isn't the only reason that nurses are having to use food banks. I'm sure it's just that all those nurses can't help but spend all their wages on expensive gifts during all the free time they don't have. Borrowing is now its lowest since before the financial crisis, which sounds good and means sad vulture Philip Hammond has met his target for 2016-17, to but borrowing helps in a recession, as it means the government can avoid making cuts elsewhere or increasing taxes, and with many predictions that Brexit could kickstart another recession, it could mean that once again the public will have to pay for it. Hooray! That's going to stop those pesky nurses spending their low salaries on ponies to ride to the food banks on, hey? Hey? But of course, first this week are local elections, which the press are going to choose to use as an indicator of how the general elections will go, even though they're not a great indicator of how the general election will go. Good, isn't it? And the reason they're not a great indicator is because the whole country isn't voting in the local elections on May the 4th, nor do people vote the same, choosing to often use local to vote for opposition more as a message to the government, which I always find as very weird. Let's send the government a message by voting in the opposition as councillors and then vote for the government for the main election to deny those councillors funds so that we get less. Yeah, why don't we just kick ourselves in the face? But 
Polls are suggesting that this local election is going to be a mega win for the Conservatives again anyway. And as it's on May the 4th, Star Wars Day, we'll just have to assume that this is Episode 5, Empire Strikes Back, and the next one, all Conservative councils will be attacked by small bears with sticks. Thing is, local elections are super important as they dictate how all your local stuff is run, you know, from education and social care to local environment and transport needs to those funny little cork pin boards at the end of your road where people put up notices saying their tortoise has gone missing. That's what's happened on my road. His name is Speedy. I mean, you're asking for it. In fact, local elections probably directly affect your lives in many more ways than general elections, though, of course, whoever gets in in June is going to choose how much money your local council has to work with. But with the June election round the corner, there's concerns that these local ones are going to have a really low turnout as seriously going out twice in a month to use pencils on a bit of paper so your area can benefit Ugh, effort right local elections to look out for are going to be all of the ones across wales which could have labor losses and lib dem gains and hopefully they'll have a complete wipeout for ukip as their popularity has dropped and also it's going to be worth looking at the results across scotland to see if yes voters are sticking with the smp or if they're moving to the greens to give them a bit of a kicking there's six mayoral elections too in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, which is likely to go to the Conservative candidate. Uh, Greater Manchester, which is probably going to go to Labour's Andy Burnham as he steps out of the Westminster bubble. Liverpool, probably be Labour. Tees Valley, probably be Labour as well. And then West Midlands, which might be Conservative, might be Labour. And West of England, which could be anyone's. I mean, even yours. Go on, give it a go. Live a little. And while it's not a great indication of how June the 8th is going to go, if Labour do lose a lot of seats, that's not a great sign, is it? Unless it's, you know, maybe so everyone can go out and kind of send Labour a message that they can't have any of the councils and then maybe you do elect them into not getting the government either and ultimately, why don't you just vote for kicking yourself in the face again? On the plus side, if UKIP have huge losses, then that's going to be incredibly satisfying. Especially as UKIP have vowed to bring back the power to local people. And if they don't get many council seats, that'll prove that local people, if given power, still want UKIP to fuck off. I'm going to look at the results next week, but if you're registered to vote on Thursday and your area is having local or mayoral elections, do go and use your vote, as it's as important on many levels as the one in June. There's no local elections near me, and I'm gutted, because I love voting. I'm tempted to pop by my local school on Thursday and just pop across on some paper next to a name anyway, but then I realised there'd be some poor kid having a crisis about why his name has been crossed out, even though he's sure he spelt it right because he has to do it every day. <laughs> So, there are two interviews this week, and the reason for that is that I had promised to speak to this interviewee, Gracie Bradley, at Against Borders for Children at some point in May. But then the stupid, bloody, stupid, stupid, bloody, stupid election happened. I forgot that the reason we said to speak in May is because of a deadline for the Against Borders for Children's campaign. May the 18th is the day the current school census is being submitted, and if you're a parent, you only have until then to boycott filling it in for your child. Why would you boycott it? Aren't censuses just fun things where everyone pretends they're Jedi so as to confuse historians? Well, yes, but school censuses aren't the same, and the info about your children that you submit isn't protected in the same way a national census is. On top of that, new additions to the census are putting children from certain backgrounds at greater risks than others. I wasn't aware of most of the issues surrounding school censuses until chatting to Gracie, so you might want to listen in, particularly if you're the owner of small people. Sorry, I mean parent of children, as this could directly affect your family. Here to explain all is the brilliant Gracie Bradley. So, hi Gracie, um, can you tell me, before anything else, a little bit about what Against Borders for Children is and why it's needed? Hi, yep. So we are a really small group of parents, teachers, um, migrants, children of migrants, campaigners um, who basically got together 
to campaign against um, what we saw as the encroachment of border controls into our schools this September. Um, the Department for Education announced that it was going to require schools to ask all pupils for their nationality and country of birth. And we just felt like in a, the climate of a hostile environment for migrants, post-Brexit uncertainty, that um, the government shouldn't be trusted with that kind of sensitive data. So what sort of it's just collecting nationality data or is it I mean, it's, it's an overall census. Is that right? That's right. So the school census happens three times every year and has done for a long time. Um, and it collects all kinds of information. Uh, so whether you're entitled to free school meals, got special educational needs, what your home address is, um, things relatively mundane things. Um, I suppose school census is a bit of a misnomer, though, because when you think about census you also think about the national census um, but the way that the data is held is very different so for the school census you know you fill in a form that's handed to you or, or your child by your te by a teacher and you send it back into school and lots of parents think that that data just stays in the school and that maybe some aggregate statistics get sent off to the local authority but what actually happens is that everything you put on the form is then put in the National Pupil Database. And that's a database that is held by the Department for Education, central government. Um, and that database is actually accessible by journalists, by researchers, by private companies. Um, so national census data is kind of super secure and can't be handed out to anybody and you're under a penalty if you hand that out to anyone. Whereas with the school census data, it's often collected without people knowing where it goes and it's given to third parties without anybody having any idea that that's what's being done with their child's data. So that's terrifying. I, I, don't, I mean, <laughs> I wonder how many parents know that, that, you know, that their children's information can be shared to journalists and people like that. That's really scary. Exactly. And there are some safeguards in place, but they're relatively few. And actually, the issue is that people don't know that this can be done with their data in the first place. That's the real cause for concern. So, I mean, the nationality and country of birth data, that is newly being collected. So that's what's new and different. But there are longer standing issues with the school census that have been raised by lots of brilliant campaigners like Defend Digital Me for some time already. Yeah, it's like, you know, just you mentioning that I, I didn't know it was to that extent that it could be shared around. And is there evidence because I remember so I remember back in December there of last year, there were reports being leaked of Theresa May's plans to deprioritize uh, de school places for children that I think were uh, children of I illegal immigrants or supposedly illegal immigrants. But are there how is there is there any evidence of how the data has been used so far or how yeah, well I mean to use it? There is so there's a register of who can access of who has access to the national pupil database generally. So you can you can FOI and you can see who's been given what data, which newspapers, etc. But with in relation to the nationality and country of birth data specifically, um, when they announced that data collection, we and a big group of other NGOs, Liberty, the Refugee Council, Migrants' Rights Network, we all wrote to the Department for Education. We said, look, we don't trust that this data won't be handed out to other departments. And so we managed to get one big concession, which is that the nationality and country of birth data isn't going in the National Pupil Database. And they've said they won't hand it 
to anybody else. But we have no proof that that is the case. And we don't know if that will change in the future. But what we do know is that lots of other data is being handed to the Home Office. Um, so we know that the data of up to 1,500 kids a month is handed to the Home Office for immigration enforcement purposes. So not nationality and country of birth, fine, but your name, your address, whatever else, that is all being handed over to the Home Office, which is really, really chilling. Yeah, it's really sinister. I mean, what's, why would they need that? <laughs> well, it goes, it goes to the National Absconder Tracing Team. So if... The Home Office has lost contact with families who, for whatever reason, don't have regular status. They are now using children's school records to track those people down and potentially remove them from the country. And they're doing the same thing with medical records. And they can do the same thing when a victim of crime who's an irregular migrant reports to the police. So it's about creating a climate of fear for irregular migrants in accessing public services. Sure. I mean, and, and also, you know, I mean, and I should say, I think all that data collection is quite terrifying and using medical records or criminal records. But when children come into it, it's almost using children as a bargaining chip uh, over, you know, to, to remove people or to deal with people's immigration status, which is a really horrible thing to do. Yeah, it's using children to get to their parents, um, which is just really unconscionable because no child is responsible for their own immigration status. There's not anything a child can possibly have done to become irregular or forget to fill in the right form or whatever else. So it's really, really insidious. Yeah, really horrible. And and so just out of interest, if... if uh... Well, for a start, do parents have the right to not give this data over? Is the school census a necessary thing? Do they have to do that? So some of this data, yeah, it does affect school funding. So parents do need to give some data. You can't opt out of giving your name, your address or whatever, which is why it's so important that that data is held securely. But the nationality and country of birth data parents have a right to refuse to give that. And I mean, our concern our, our concern that remains around the nationality and country of birth data is that it will be used to come up with a policy like the one that you mentioned about deprioritizing irregular migrant kids for school places. So that's why it's really important that parents refuse to give that, that nationality and country of birth data, even if it's not going to the Home Office, because the government can still use it to do something quite nasty to migrant kids. Right. And, and parents can just refuse. That should be that should be fine. They won't get any trouble with their school. That's what I mean. It doesn't it doesn't affect the child in any way. No, absolutely not. Because if you are a migrant child who needs extra support in school, your teacher will already assess something called English as an additional language. And that's done in the classroom and already sent off. And that's how that's how extra needs used to be used to be assessed anyway. So the nationality country birth stuff has got nothing to do with it. Um, there is no sanction for answering refuse. The Department for Education has clarified that. They've written to every school to say answering refused is a totally legitimate option. And even if your school hasn't sent you a letter asking for your child's nationality and country of birth this time round, because they already did it earlier in the year, you can just send a letter in anyway answering refused. And that will cancel out any information that you gave before you knew that this was such a difficult and tricky issue. Fantastic. And and so the the next census is very, very soon. Is that right? 
It is. The next census date is May the 18th. So schools may already have been sending out forms asking for information about kids. But as I said, they also might not bother because they've already got all the information. But there's a form on our website, schoolsabc.net, in the resources section. And you can just send that letter in whether you are or aren't asked and just answer refuse to child's nationality and country of birth. Fantastic. So parents need to get on that ASAP uh, and yeah, and fill in the template letter and hand it into schools before the 18th of May. Before, before the 18th of May, that is absolutely optimal. I mean, that's the one thing that we'd ask all parents to do because it's something that every parent can do. And the more parents that do it, the more migrant children are protected because the data becomes more and more useless. Um, so print off that form and hand it into school. And if people are feeling brave enough, they could have a conversation with other parents about why they've done that or with the teacher about why they think this data shouldn't be collected. Brilliant. Um, and uh, apart from obviously follow Schools ABC on Twitter, that's at, it's at Schools ABC on Twitter, isn't it? Against uh, mm-hmm. And your website is schoolsabc.net. Um, yep. And what else can listeners do if they want to protest about this? Because obviously, as well as refusing the census, there is, as you mentioned, the issue of all this data going into a non-protected database. So what, what else uh, do you suggest people do? And is there anyone else or any other groups that they should also follow? Yeah, so I would suggest, so hand in the letter number one, Um, There's also a letter to school governors um, and head teachers, because the reality is, is that teachers and schools don't necessarily want to be part of enforcing immigration. So if you as a parent say, I don't feel so comfortable with this, that opens up a space for them to talk about it too. And then if you want to, you can all get in touch with the Department for Education and present a united front. But um, in terms of other people to support and work with i've got to give a big shout out to defend digital me that campaigns on this whole issue of child privacy in a digital age Um, and they did an enormous amount of the groundwork for the against borders for children campaign and continue to work with us really closely Um, and also have a look at privacy international because they do a lot around digital rights and safety i mean i would normally tell people to write to their mp but there are no mps at the minute um so it's very bad timing isn't it terrible timing yeah with brexit and the election it hasn't really been the time to get anything done unfortunately but what i would say is if people sign up to our newsletter then once we know who mps are we will support people to get in touch with their local mp and tell them just how outrageous these border controls in our schools are Big thanks to Gracie, and you have until May the 18th to boycott that census. If you head to schoolsapc.net, you can find a template letter, and please, please do spread the word to other parents who might be concerned about just handing out information about their kids to any old Tom, Dick or advertising company. Against Borders for Children are also on Twitter at schools underscore ABC, as are the campaigns Gracie recommends at Defend Digital Me and at Privacy Int. Uh, that's what Privacy International are on Twitter. Check them all out. Next week starts the election based interviews on this podcast. So if there is any area of the election that you'd particularly like me to interview someone about or anyone in particular that you'd like me to try and talk to, please, please, please do let me know at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Parpolbro group on Facebook or partly political broadcast at Gmail. Or give the cursed nutshell to the guard who will open the gate, allowing you to pass the shaman relic to the king who'll call me on my mobile because I've got the royal link-ups in it, bruv. Again, email is probably just easiest, isn't it? Last week, I asked you for slogans to the Conservatives' 2017 election campaign. So naturally, this week, I thought it only fair to ask you for slogans for Labour's 2017 election campaign. 
Whereas all the excellent entries last week were pretty much along a similar line and similar tone, this week's on Labour are, much like the party itself, quite divided. And I should also say that you lot are so good at this, I really hope that all the parties are listening and give you some hefty, hefty paid work to use these professionally. At Andy Gilder says, tired of strong and stable? Vote Labour. No, wait, hang on. Oh, don't print that on the leaflet. I'll call you back. At Neil Wright Legal says, confused, you will be. At Ethan D. Lawrence says, Labour 2017. Um, well, um, I'm pretty sure that's going to be their doorstepping tactic, actually. I think I've had a few of those already. At Chronicle Flask says, Labour, um, at least we're not as bad as them. I hope that has a big arrow and you can just put it next to your other flyers. At Hello Dave says, repair works in progress. Expect delays in the fight starting. We apologise for any inconvenience. At Vaughan Earl says, Labour, helping Conservative victories since 2010. Oh, slam, major burn. At Andy Walker 9 says, Yes, we're a mess, but we aren't the other lot. At Fluff Logic says, If she's strong and stable, I'm David Hasselhoff. That's definitely a winning one. Although, the absolute disappointment if people voted Jeremy Corbyn in, assuming it was David Hasselhoff in disguise. At Benson Mike says, uh, Labour 2017, hold me. At Gavin Kernow says, Labour 2017, for fuck's sake, come on, please. At Stephen McDade says, Make Great Britain again? Question mark. At Rainy101 says, Vote Labour, not the shittiest, despite our best efforts. And my favourite this week comes from my friend, yes, it's cheating, nepotism all the way, um, at Beck Hill Comedian, or Be Chill Comedian, uh, who said, Labour may be painful, but it's how we get life. That is genuinely good. They should totally use that. Uh, next week, slogans for the Lib Dems. Uh, so look out for the post on the Purple Bro Twitter or Facebook next Sunday, and I'll read out my favourite replies on next week's show. Donald Trump, Donald Trump, scary Donald Trump, orange, orange Donald Trump, racist Donald Trump, sexist Donald Trump, stupid Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, oh my god, President Donald Trump, that's a real thing, oh god, it's scary, I'm really scared. Cheese puff eruption, Donald Trump has now been President of the USA for 100 days. Can you believe it? I know, right? Only 100? It feels way more like it's been a 1,000 or far, far more. If time flies when you're having fun, then these 100 days have definitely dragged almost to the point of going in reverse. And my, oh my, oh my, has Donald Trump served the American people well in those 100 days? Well, not by American service standards, obviously. I was going by British ones. Unnecessary bombings of other countries, flagrant use of taxpayers' money to go golfing and give his family jobs, visiting absolutely no other countries, going back on several of his campaign promises including repealing Obamacare or building the wall, forcing one member of staff to resign due to connections with Russia, complaining that the job of president is more work than he thought it would be, and according to the Washington Post, in the last 100 days he's made 488 false or misleading claims, which is an average of 4.9 false claims a day. That's more than one of those dodgy PPI callers on a good day. If Trump has the qualities of Pinocchio, right now his nose would have been to more countries as president than he has. Trump currently has a 52.8% disapproval rating, but he still has lots of core supporters on side because polls suggest his constant attacking the media mean that they actually believe him more than the news. I guess if ignorance is bliss, then believing the yarns of a Siena windsock is probably far more pleasant than hearing things that don't fit your confirmation bias. And so what of the next 100 days, which it looks like he's going to last through, sadly? Even though he asked in an interview today, but why was there a civil war? A question that's only acceptable for Americans under five years old to ask, or anyone who studied at Trump University. 
Well, Trump plans to lower corporation tax to 15%, which could bring more companies to the US and generate more work and jobs, or could just be essentially a tax cut for the rich. 43% of corporate tax in the US is paid for by the 1% richest people in the US. So, for the top earning companies who earn over the $18.3 million threshold, they're currently getting a tax cut of 35%. If that drops to 15, that's a real sweet extra chunk of dough to get back. Hmm, I wonder how much the Trump Organization makes. Hang on a second. Oh, $9.5 billion per year. Huh, funny that. It also seems like saggy gargoyle and alt-right twat Steve Bannon is back behind Trump and they're working out how best to implement his alt-right racist ideology. So sadly, that is going to be something we see even more of over the next 100 days, as well as possible nuclear war and even more tax cuts for the rich. Let me guess, is step one of implementing his alt-right racist ideology not understanding why there was a US civil war? Hmm... And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Thanks again for listening. And please, please, please do spread the word if you enjoy this show. Get in touch if there's stuff that you'd like me to look into. Uh, subscribe. Give us a nice review on iTunes. And chuck me a quid or two at the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. Big, big thanks to Acast for hosting this. My brother, the last sceptic for all the tunes, at Pro Wrestling, my wonderful other half, who every week I make suffer by going, can you read this? I don't know if it's got enough jokes in it before I shout it down a microphone. And the global political system for the endless state of disarray that means I'm never out of material. This will be back next week, by which point Boris Johnson will have reverted to Chaucerian diatribes that no one understands. Labour will still be trying to explain their Brexit plans, while Theresa May will still be telling a bunch of selected people in an invite-only room that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't communicate with the public well. Goodbye! This week's show was brought to you by the number one, which is the amount of complex reasons nurses have for going to food banks. It's just it's just one, Theresa May, because they can't afford to eat food. I mean... It's also brought to you by the letters FFS, for fuck's sake. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.